0: If you are new, you're stepping into week three of a five-part topical series about the church. And this week, we have the opportunity to engage a topic within that series that, well, you might not have expected you'd ever hear a sermon on. Elder-led Congregationalism. So welcome. I hope even the title piques your curiosity. If that's something that's a strange concept to you, then maybe there'll be things here that help you. If you're part of another church, ways you can go back and edify your church with this. If you're part of this church, we seek to continually be investigating and asking God to help us understand more of his purposes and plans for us as people. And so we give five weeks to studying the topic of the church and the gospel with every prayer that he will show us things to help us to follow him more. So week three, week one we studied how the church is built on the gospel confession. Last week we thought about how the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper mark off the gospel church. And this week we give attention to what the governing structure of the church has to do with the gospel ministry of the church. What does the the governing structure of a church have to do with its gospel ministry? So my main idea, which you'll find actually printed with the rest of the outline, there just inside your bulletin on page number eight. The main idea, actually the main idea is not there, but you might want to write this down, but it's fleshed out in the outline there. The main idea of this sermon is this. Following God's order for church government helps us as a church to stay faithful to the gospel. Following God's order for church government helps our church stay faithful to the gospel. And so you see there in the outline, we're gonna take that idea into two, in two parts. Part number one, God's order for church government. And part number two, how God's order helps our church stay faithful to the gospel. Like I said, this might be the first time you've ever heard a sermon about this or teaching about this. It might be new to you to even think about that, that God actually prescribes a kind of particular order for how a church is to be governed. You might have assumed, like I did for most of my life, that churches are like sovereign nations. And God has given every church the freedom to choose which form of governing structure works best for them. So if you're like I was, or you're just curious to know more about this idea, I hope we get to see together this morning how God uses authority in the church to accomplish his good purposes in our lives as Christians. You know, the entire witness of scripture, reveals that God is interested in how we are governed. In his actions, God consistently works to create and order a people around him. In the beginning, God did this. He created a universe out of nothing and established a hierarchy of governance. The creation order was put into subordination to the dominion of the first man and the first woman. You can read about that in Genesis one26 to 28, where he gave man and women dominion of the creation. We marvel at the way God created this world, the order he gave to every part, how even the smallest particles reveal a divine intentionality just as much as the largest galaxies do. These are the fingerprints of God, the creator, whose ordered attributes are stamped on his creative works. Nothing of what he made was meant to exist in chaos or disorder. And as it was for his natural world, so it was for human society. In fact, the first indications that God's ordered world was coming apart and cracking was when sin was introduced. Sin is a rejection of God's order. And with it, a curse was introduced. And the curse left men and women in tension over their God-given roles and over their relationship with God, their creator. Cain and his descendants bristled against the idea of submission to God. Noah's contemporaries filled the earth with evil. Pharaoh enslaved Israel. All of this, demonstrations that God's order was being opposed by men's sin. And so in a way, as you read through the Old Testament, you go through all that, and you come to the creation of a people called Israel, we see God sort of starting over with that nation. God reordering people around him again, God creating a covenant people at Mount Sinai and prescribing a sort of ordered worship to their society. He instituted order with laws and civic instruction and moral parameters, all intending to lead Israel to an ordered life of worship, a return to Eden's design, while still necessarily recognizing that sin was included. And the presence of sin required mediator priests and blood sacrifices. But even in all this, God promised his good and loving authority. He promised he would lead them out of Egypt. He emphasized over and over as we repeated this morning that he would shepherd them and watch over them. In Exodus twenty-nine forty-five, he committed to be their God and they his people. They promised that they would be responsible in their worship to him and he would take responsibility for their protection in their future. And so this new nation, the people of God begins with Moses as their leader. And then at his father-in-law Jethro's advice in Exodus 18, Moses appointed elders from among the tribes to help him lead. As you follow Israel's history, they will have various leaders throughout their years. priests judges, kings, each would to some degree help and hurt, but the ultimate issue was not what forms of government failed or succeeded. Israel would eventually fall because no matter who was in charge or who was following, the nation could not keep God's law. And so in Jeremiah 31, if you wanna turn there, Jeremiah 31, a prophet rises up and tells Israel about a new future. A new future under a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. And as I read this promise, of the days that are to come and the new covenant people that are going to be created see if you can hear how god will order that new people around him jeremiah 31 31 to 34 behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God was going to create a new people who would truly know God and have God's law written on their hearts. The promise here foretells a coming age when an internal government of the Spirit on human hearts would open the possibility for the entire people of God to exercise responsibility and authority within God's household. This is where this is leading. The major shift in the whole congregation's ability to govern and be governed would come about Because through Jesus, God would forgive them of their sin and remember their sin no more. And in their stony-hearted places, God would put obedient, joyful, willing-to-follow hearts in all his people. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then, God brings about a new order in which all his people in his church are involved in leading and following God together. It is what 1 Peter describes in 1 Peter 2.9 as a royal priesthood, or a kingdom of priests. So this spirit-indwelling, law-abiding potential of the new covenant people of God opens a way for an altered, but still very much ordered, kind of governance in the church. So we see, as Jesus comes and begins his ministry, he gathers to him disciples who he teaches his commands to, gives them new hearts to believe and follow him, he names them apostles, he sends them out in the early days of the church, they exercise a temporary authority as the church gets established, but their lives eventually end, and during their ministry, they pass off leadership to the church to elders who are set up in local churches. You can see an example of that in Acts 14, verse 23. Through Jesus and his his apostles, God prescribes a church order that combines the king-priest function of all his people and the right and good place of leadership that had always existed in God's design, even from the beginning. He merges the two together. And the way we describe this merger and this new church order found in the New Testament is that a church is elder-led and congregationally governed. A group of elders lead the church, while the congregation, the whole church, all the members, exercise their given ultimate authority. So let's unpack those two sides of it. Elder-led, congregationally governed. First elder led, as the apostles went out with the gospel message about Jesus, people heard and believed and local churches were established. And in those places where believers heard the gospel and believed and were baptized, the apostles appoint leaders or elders. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls upon the elders in the church in one particular place, Ephesus, and addresses them as overseers or pastors or shepherds in first timothy 3 and titus 1 paul gives two such pastors timothy and titus instructions for church order especially how to lead the church to assess a man's qualification to serve as an elder in the church in first peter 5 5 Peter addresses elders in the church, reminding them that their leadership should follow the example of Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. These qualified shepherds and leaders exercised a kind of authority in the church. They were to be protectors, teachers, exemplars of Christian character, fulfilling a role similar to the way fathers lead their homes. Because of their position and responsibility, Paul writes that they deserve honor from those they lead, and Hebrews encourages church members to obey their elders. And yet, their authority is not autonomous, meaning they don't just kind of exist and answer to no one. Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And the elder's authority is derived from the church that recognizes them to serve and from Jesus who gave them as elders to that particular church. This is why we use the term elder-led and not the term elder-ruled, as other churches might. Because while having an authority, the elders are not tasked with ultimate authority to make all decisions for the church. Instead, Christ and the apostles leave that authority in the hands of the church itself or the congregation. This is what we mean when we say congregationally governed or that we are a congregational church. So what kind of things is the congregation responsible for that the elders are not? Switch to the other side of that governing paradigm that Jesus set up. What, if that's what the elders are and that's what they do, What is the congregation responsible for? What's the authority they've been given? Well, we'll talk about this more in my second point, but we see the church authorized to uphold and protect the gospel confession, Matthew 15, to administer the ordinances, Matthew 28, to appoint leaders, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, by implication, to exercise discipleship and discipline, Ephesians 4, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, more of which we'll talk about next week, and to carry out the gospel, Matthew 28, Acts 1, and many other places. So let's pause for a moment. Let me help us trace where we've been. God is a God of order. When he creates his people, he orders them around himself and worship of him. He did this with Israel, through the law, but now in Christ, he reorders his church around his son. God prescribes a governing structure within the church with Christ as the head, elders as leaders, and the whole congregation as the final authority. In saying that this is God's prescribed order for the church, we do think every church should have this form of government, in being faithful to Scripture's teaching. We do not think these are unimportant things just because they're not necessary for salvation, which, hear me clearly, these things are not necessary for salvation. God gave these instructions, however, and we believe he instituted this order for a reason and with a purpose, which leads me into our second point. God's order helps our church stay faithful to the gospel. God's order helps our church stay faithful to the gospel. Now, if I just threw you off with what I just said, before I go any further, let me clarify that I am not saying by this heading of this point that a church cannot be faithful to the gospel if they don't follow this order. I am not saying that. There are many churches faithful to the gospel who are not elder led and not congregationally governed. So notice in my point, I did not say God's order makes our church stay faithful to the gospel, but helps. Helps is a very important word. Elder led congregationalism is not a magic formula, but it is a rule to follow. It will not by itself protect our church from error, sin, or drift. We depend on the lead of Jesus Christ through his spirit and his word to show us the way always. But if God did prescribe this order in scripture, then like everything he does, this order is purposeful. When applied, this order will serve a specific God-given purpose. And I think we see that purpose and that design and how biblical church government helps a church stay true to gospel faithfulness. So what am I saying? I'm saying that yes, we do expect that obedience to God's rule in this area will help our church to flourish because that's the reason God has given us all his rules. And yes, We should expect that to diminish or ignore this part of God's counsel would invite negative consequences in our church life. Because that's always what happens when God's ways are not our ways. And yes, when followed, this way of ordering our church will help us to see and know God and Jesus Christ better. So, for the rest of our time, I want us to take a closer look how God's prescribed order helps our church stay faithful to the gospel and we'll see it in two key ways two key ways they're listed there God's order for elders gives godly leadership to the church and God's order for the congregation entrusts the gospel witness to the church and that's how God orders our church to help us stay faithful to the gospel. Let me start with that first one. God's order for elders gives godly leadership to the church. Paul tells Timothy what a qualified elder looks like in 1 Timothy 3, if you want to turn there. 1 Timothy 3. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is a description of a godly Christian man. It's a description of the kind of Christian we should all aspire to be. The only exception on this list that might not fit you or me in pursuing godliness is the ability to teach. And all these qualities are important to show the person is suited for a specific role. Verse one, the office of overseer. Verse five, the one who cares for God's church. God's desire is for his people to be led by people with obvious Christian character because true Christian leadership will lead others to Christ. In the passage that uh, we almost read earlier before the prayer of confession, Ephesians 4, if you wanna turn there, Ephesians 4. In this passage, particularly starting in verse 7 and following we hear that Christ after coming and giving himself as a sacrifice to make us the church one through his blood that's chapter 3 Christ ascended to heaven verse 8 chapter 4 and 9 and once ascended he gave the gift of godly leadership to the church look at verse 11 he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers why to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ notice the process jesus ascended having accomplished salvation creating the church gives gifts that lead people to grow according to his word to become mature in christ Now, knowing my own weaknesses and failings, even as I just publicly read in front of you the qualifications for an elder and knowing places where I stumble and fail over them. And knowing the other elders here would have to confess the same, what confidence do we have to presume to lead you as fallen humans, that we are. Well, I think the only answer we would profess is the grace of Jesus Christ working through the gospel and only that. In my younger years, I was not planning to pastor anyone. I was proud and self-seeking, but God in his inexplicable mercy and grace worked in my heart addressed me in my sin, gave me a new heart as he promised to do for his people and new desires to serve him wherever he wanted me to be placed. And by his grace and love, which I thank him for regularly, he placed me here and he placed other elders here. And he says to us, feed my sheep. Our own inadequacy and need of Jesus as your elders is why we ask you to keep praying for us, to lead you in Jesus's ways and not our own. I understand that Christ commissions me as a shepherd and the other elders here, not to fill a seat, but to care for the sheep, because they are precious to Jesus. Acts 20, 28 tells me, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which Jesus obtained with his own blood. What does an elder need to fulfill this high role? humble dependence on the grace of Jesus. A confidence in the Spirit of God to work powerfully in spite of my own weaknesses. A commitment to leading not according to my opinions and my best practices, but according to God's Gospel and His Word. The people that elders lead are not encouraged to follow because their elders are great men, or because they are talented men, or because they are the most natural leaders in the room. Rather, because the church can see that through the mercy and grace of Jesus, working, these leaders are Christians who know Christ and know his word and desire for others to follow Jesus above anything else. The church should be able to hear their leaders pray and through their prayers see that Christ is in them. The church, by God's grace, should be able to witness elders laboring in their counselor and in their teaching so that the church hears Christ from them. The people that elders lead are not encouraged to follow because these are great men, but the church can receive love from their elders because the elders yearn for people to know the love of Christ through them. Godly leaders have a certain way in which, a way, a manner that Jesus calls them to lead. They're to be gentle. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, 8 says that we're, we're to be like nursing mothers taking care of our own children. Ready to not only share the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because the church is that dear to us. Godly leaders are not to be interested in their own gain, but in seeing God produce godliness in those that they watch over. They're to be, as First Thessalonians 2.12 says, like fathers with their children, exhorting and encouraging and charging the church to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us all into his kingdom and his glory. Godly leadership keeps an eye on the chief shepherd, knowing that the task of the elder is to lead others to Jesus using the ways of Jesus. So Peter charges me and the rest of the pastors here in Peter, 1 Peter 5, 2-4. through 4, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. On all the descriptions of who an elder is and what he is to do, we see God's loving order for elders to helpfully provide godly leadership to God's people. But how does God's design for elders help the church remain faithful to the gospel? Well, I think the answer is this. When elders lead according to God's word, Recognizing their own need of the gospel and their people's need of Jesus, the Spirit uses their teaching and their example to persuade others to follow them as they follow Christ. It's persuasive. I say persuade because we as elders cannot make you follow us. I have no power to coerce you into obedience. Coercive authority is necessary in the state where people are unwilling to abide by the laws of the land, and so must be restrained by laws and punished for breaking those laws. But among God's people, coercive power should not be necessary. In the church where people have been made alive to Christ by the Spirit and given new hearts that love God and want to follow Jesus, there is a built-in posture in your regenerated heart and mind to want God's leadership in our lives. A desire to know God's word, to receive it gladly from those who teach God's word to us. An eagerness to have our lives lived individually and corporately in a conformation to the image of Christ so that we understand what a benefit it is to have leaders who will equip us to minister to each other so we all grow up into Christ. When we come into the church by the gospel, as everyone who comes in the church does. And as we're led in the church with the gospel, as I pray and hope, and we pray and hope, God will continue to lead us. And as we see through our church leaders what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel, as I pray the Lord would enable us to be. Then God's intended purpose is achieved we are helped to stay faithful to the gospel. That's the first side of how God's order helps us stay faithful to the gospel. Let's consider the second side for the rest of my time. It's this. God's order also entrusts gospel witness to the congregation. God's order entrusts gospel witness to the congregation. As effective as godly leaders might be in helping a church listen to Jesus and follow Jesus, the the decision to do that and the responsibility to do that is ultimately in the hands of the church, not her leaders. Jesus entrusted leaders with care over the church, but to the church, he entrusted the responsibility to protect and proclaim the gospel. And when I say church, I mean a local church, recognizing that there is a universal church, as we've covered in previous weeks, made up of all God's people and all God's time, but what I'm talking about is this local expression of the church. Any group of Christians who confess the gospel, preach it, and observe the commands of Jesus to baptize and gather around the Lord's Supper is a church. Not more, not less. And as we've seen in this series, and we'll continue to see, that particular local group is authorized by Jesus, independent of the authority of outside councils, bishops, popes, priests, or presbyteries. According to Matthew 18, verse 20, and Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus invests his authority in the local congregations of believers now i'm going to say it again we are happy to participate and partner with other churches and other ministries for the spread of the gospel but no other church tells us what decisions to make what leaders to have or where our money should go christ is the head of the church and we as the church are connected to him through the gospel and there is no need for another mediator We do not need a priest to receive our confession and give us absolution as Catholicism claims. We do not need saints to pray on our behalf. We do not need a human pope to interpret and add to God's word as authoritative in our life. Christ our head says we are all free to come to him and in his name we are all authorized to represent him as ambassadors and to serve him as king priests. First Peter 2.9, we, Warnell Road Baptist Church, are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Jesus gave his life to create a new people ordered around him and tasked with making his gospel known in his world. So we honor Jesus our head in paying attention to how he orders us. So what specifically did Jesus authorize the congregation to do? And how does that witness to the gospel? Well, it's a way to Finish up. I'm going to give you four ways Jesus entrusts the gospel witness to the whole church. Four ways Jesus entrusts the gospel witness to the whole church. Number one, the confession. We talked about this in week one. Jesus entrusts the church with guarding the gospel confession. In Matthew 16, Jesus identified the church as that people built on the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And so the apostles go and reiterate that the church is to hold on to this confession. We are to guard it so as not to be lost through distorting it and being deceived by false gospels. Each church in each generation then is a kind of protectorate. Receiving the gospel passed down and entrusting that gospel to the next generation. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. The confession. We're called to protect it. Number two, the ordinances. We covered this last week. Jesus gives the gospel ordinances to the church to administer. So in just a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's Supper and I'll lead us. And just because I lead us, doesn't mean I'm in charge of who comes to the table and who doesn't. You've delegated to me the role of explaining what this meal is, but Jesus tells the church to invite or not invite the people that come to eat on the basis of their gospel confession and the evidence of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ exhibited in their life. This is why the church's authorization in the ordinances, who they baptize and who they serve the meal to, is connected to church membership and church discipline. The church should only affirm and baptize those who profess the gospel and seek to live according to it. And if, after being baptized, a person's life does not accord with the gospel, Jesus instructs the church to remove their affirmation and their invitation from participation in the Lord's Supper think more about that in detail next week number three the teaching the teaching in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 Luke commends the Bereans for hearing the Apostles teaching and going home and doing the homework to check to make sure that teaching aligned with Scripture in Galatians chapter 1 Paul tells the Galatians to judge their leaders and teachers on the basis of the true gospel that they either hear or don't hear coming out of their mouths. If any teacher taught something different, the church was called to reject it. I think this is one of the helpful things about our church's statement of faith. It provides a kind of cross-reference tool by which the church can guard the teaching of our church. We are, as we come in here and gather under God's word, in agreement about what the Bible teaches and is summarized that way in our statement of faith. We take a collective interest then as members here in holding fast to the faith, once and for all delivered to all the saints and measuring even our own church's teaching and doctrines against the testimony of the Bible. If we find ourselves, or if we find the teaching we're receiving to be out of accord with scripture, We address it and we ask for God's help to come back into alignment with what he said in his word. Number four, how does the church get entrusted with the gospel witness by Jesus? Well, number four, the leadership. This is closely tied to the previous one, the teaching, because it is the leaders who are usually teaching. The church appoints her leaders based on the qualifications given in scripture. We don't appoint leaders simply because they're successful in business or particularly charismatic individuals or they give a lot of money to the church. We are to look to godly men who are able to teach God's word. According to 1 Timothy 5, if the leaders lead as Christian examples and faithfully teach us God's word, we honor them and follow them. If they do not, we publicly rebuke them. And if they've disqualified themselves, we remove them from being elders. The standard of leadership in the church is the word of God and the character of Christ, and the whole church is tasked in keeping to that standard. I think I said there were four things. I'm sorry, there are five. Number five, last one, the gospel ministry. The gospel ministry. Christ gave his commission to go and baptize and teach his commands to his church. He sent his disciples out in Acts 1-8 to herald the message of Christ to the world. We do this in our ministry, or we aim to, with God's help. We do it through counseling each other with the gospel, speaking the truth to one another in love, Ephesians 4. We do this by stewarding our resources, supporting financially gospel ministry in our church and in other places. We exercise the authority Jesus gives us as a church by going out and speaking to people who are lost about the reconciliation that Jesus Christ offers to make us one with God. A message that if you're here this morning and not following Jesus, we want to make sure you hear from us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we, as this local church, are ambassadors for Christ and for you who is not following Jesus, we are people placed in your life to make an appeal to you. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Though your sins separate you from him, Christ has come and died in your place, given his body and blood to forgive you of all your sins, to declare you and present you as clean, and righteous before God, all because of Jesus, all because of his sacrificial death, all because of his victorious resurrection over death that promises that your trust and faith in Jesus will not put you to shame, but one day when Christ returns will render you alive in Christ forever with him. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Even our attention to church order is a way we carry out the gospel ministry. In 1 Corinthians 1440, after explaining how the church was to worship God when gathered and reminding them of that priority, because one of the reasons being unbelievers would be among them and watching. Paul writes, all things should be done decently and in order. The confession, the ordinances, the teaching, the leadership, and the gospel ministry, this is God's prescribed order for how the congregation exercises its God-given authority. A few brief words to close. I recognize that there are so many ways we could talk about how human beings mess this order up. So many ways. So many ways that maybe you even lived through or have seen. I'm very sorry that has been your experience. May God help us not to replay it. But even so, Instead, I'd like us to finish by thinking about how God's good order can be good for us when we follow it. The church can be a people organized under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our head. We can live understanding that any authority we have has been given from Him. We can, by His grace, function as a church by faithfully using the authority Jesus gives us to uphold, protect, and proclaim Jesus' gospel. And we can welcome the leadership of elders that Jesus provides. By God's grace and the filling and leading of the Spirit, we can be such a church. Congregationally ruled, elder-led, ordered God's way, A way that helps us remain faithful to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, these things are important to us because you have found it important to communicate them to us. Lord, we confess any ways that we have erred from your order that we've misused it for reasons you did not intend. we confess ways that we have not taken up the responsibility you give us and shown care and concern to live it out as your grace and spirit would enable us to do. But Lord, we also put our hope in you. We put our hope in you as a God of order, a God of goodness, a God who uses your authority for the good of your people we put our hope in you we put our hope in your word and we ask that you by your word and your spirit would work in us in such ways that follow your order and lead to the faithful ministry of the gospel among us we ask this for our sakes but more for the glory of jesus christ among us in whose name we pray amen